everyone. Take out your Bibles this morning. Turn to Mark chapter 3 this morning. Uh, Mark chapter 3 verse 13 is where we're picking up our study through the gospel of Mark. So we're moving verse by verse through this gospel. It's on page 406 if you might be using one of the Bibles you picked up as you came in this morning. And uh, we started this series two weeks ago. Um, you've heard of WWJD, what would Jesus do? But we're calling this WDJD, which is what did Jesus do as we're following the life of Christ uh, through the gospel of Mark. Today's message title is All Things New. Um, we all like to get new things. If you like new things, say yes. You know, and uh, I mean, whether it's a new car or, you know, a, a, some new clothes or a new phone or, or a new house. I remember when we were uh, living in Indiana, we, uh, there was this new uh, neighborhood that was, was basically going up and we had an opportunity to buy a new house. And so we went in there, we looked at their models and we decided that we were going to have a new house built and we had never done that. And uh, the first house we bought, you know, was like 900 square feet, and I mean, it was like a small apartment, and it got us by, and then we decided to build something a little bigger. We had two kids, and said, we probably need to build something. So we decided to build something brand new, and it was exciting to drive over. It was just a, like around the corner from the other house, about a mile away, so we'd drive by. We watched them pour the new foundation and put the new walls up, and, it, you know, we got really excited as it got closer and closer. And then when it was time to move into the brand new house, I was really excited because uh, those of you that know me, if you've, if you've uh, gotten to know me, I can be a little bit uh, OCD, I think they call it. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about? Obsessive compulsive disorder. I like things just right. I like them a particular way. Uh, I like things to be nice and tidy. So I was really excited about a brand new house that nobody else has ever lived in and had their dirt in there and their, you know, germs and all that kind of stuff. So I was really excited about this brand new house. And so even when we were moving in the house, we had a lot of people from our church that were going to help us move in. And I made them take their shoes off like at the door. You know, they were nice enough to help. And I'm like, no, take your shoes off. And, you know, I laid cardboard out so they didn't mess up the brand new carpet. I was like, I was, I was sure I was going to keep this carpet as clean and nice as I could as long as we had this house. And then, of course, we had the no shoes rule for our kids. And about a month goes by in this new house. Now, something that people didn't tell me when you buy a new house you have to buy a lot of new things to go into the house. You know, my wife's like, we can't just put the old furniture in the new house. We can't just put the old draperies on the new house. Some of your ladies are like, that's right. So, I mean, we spent all this money on putting all these appliances in and, you know, new draperies and new furniture and all this stuff. And I was like, man, I didn't know it was going to cost this much. And so we get in there and I'm trying to keep everything just perfect as long as we can. Well, that lasted about a month. Because our new house, a month, about a month goes by, and one day my wife calls me on the phone, and she is crying. And she's like, you're not going to believe what happened. I thought, like, something happened to one of the kids. And she's like, you're just going to have to see it when you get home. And I'm like, I'll be right there. And so I come in the door, and in the middle of our living room floor of our brand new house is this huge ink stain from a ballpoint pen. I mean, this puddle. I mean, it couldn't have been in... You know, it wasn't like in a corner where you could put some furniture over it. It was right in the middle of the light-colored, brand-new carpet floor was this huge ink stain. Shelly had tried to scrub it and get it up, and that just made it worse. It spread it around, changed the color of the carpet. And here was, it wasn't one of my children. Here was the culprit that messed up my new house. That is right there. Our basset hound, Cassie. And uh, we actually had to have a, a carpet company come out and cut the square out and like put in a new square because they couldn't get it out. And, and so it was a big mess. But it was nice new house until that happened. And then it's like that just kind of marked it forever. Well, today, why did I tell you that story? Oh, yeah, all things new. It was a good story about our dog Cassie. You know, we're going to look at what Jesus, when he came on the scene... When he came to this earth, he made all things new. I could have used Jesus at that point to heal my carpet, but it didn't happen that way. Uh, he, we saw this last week. Pastor Barry brought our message. If you didn't see it, I'd really encourage you guys to go online uh, to our website and watch last week's message. But we began to see that Jesus didn't try to bring a new religious system to this earth. He didn't try to take you know, his ideas and his teaching and, and what he brought and mesh it with the old dead religious Pharisee system. He brought a brand new thing, and what we learn about Jesus that I love and what this church is about, he didn't bring a new religion, he brought new relationships. Amen? 
I mean, that's what Jesus is about. He's about relationships. So today, uh, Jesus presents us with three new relationships in chapter 3 and moving into chapter 4 that what he established 3, 2,000 years ago in these three relationships still affect all of us today as you're going to see these, and they didn't get messed up like my floor. So let's look at the first one if you're taking notes there this morning. The first uh, new relationship that Jesus introduces here in Mark chapter 3 is a new leadership. Jesus introduced a new leadership. And let's go ahead and pick up our reading in Mark chapter 3, verse 13. And it says, And when Jesus, he went up on the mountain, he called to him those to himself he wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed how many, church? Twelve. He appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach. Verse 15 of chapter 3. And to have power to heal sickness and to cast out demons. And then he begins to name these twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee. John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, and notice the note here, who also betrayed him, and they went into a house. And this house they went into, as we learned last week, was probably Peter's house. That was sort of the headquarters there in Capernaum. Now, this house has a hole in it, the roof by this point, if you remember the story from last week. But what we see here is Jesus calling these 12 men to himself and giving them special orders. And it's significant that there are 12 of them, this new leadership that Jesus put in place. There's a reason there were 12. If you remember back in the Old Testament, when God established the nation of Israel, he did it through 12 sons. You remember those 12 sons? And those 12 sons became the nation of Israel. And listen, it was God's intent that the nation of Israel would lead the world to the one true God and would introduce the Messiah, Jesus Christ. That was God's original intention. But unfortunately, the Jews began to drift away from their God and began not to follow him. And by the time Jesus showed up on the scene, they were in such spiritual and moral decay that God introduces a new group of leaders, a new spiritual leadership. We, we could say he, he moved it from a physical nation of Israel to the spiritual nation with the 12 men we know as the 12 disciples or 12 apostles. And it was through those 12 men that you remember in the book of Acts, the church began. And that new spiritual relationship that we're a part of today as brothers and sisters in Christ, those who've accepted Christ. And so he moves from the old leadership of Israel to the new spiritual leadership of these 12 apostles with this new leadership. Now, many people refer to these 12 as the 12 disciples. And some people call them the 12 apostles. And some people say, well, is there a difference? There is. Let me give you the definition of the word disciple. The word disciple means learner or follower. Learner or follower. Jesus had many disciples, many people that learned from him, many people that followed him. We know he had at least 144, it talks about in some passages. But he only had 12 apostles. And that's important that you understand the difference. There were many disciples of Christ, but there were only 12 specifically chosen apostles and were given the names of those 12 right here in Mark chapter 3 that we just read about. Luke says it very well in his gospel. Listen to how Luke describes it. It's, he said, and when it was day, he called his disciples to himself and from them he chose how many? 12 whom he also named apostles. So these 12 were this new, special, specific leadership that Jesus was going to use in a certain way. Now let me give you the definition of the word apostle. Apostle means this, one who is sent out with an official commission. Sent out to do a special commission, a special responsibility or job. And we read what this special commission of this new leadership of the 12 is in verse 14. Jesus said, then he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them, where? Out. To preach. And it was through those 12 that the, the, the New Testament church uh, began. Let me tell you how significant and practical those 12 apostles are to us today. Without those 12 apostles doing the job and taking seriously the commission and responsibility Jesus gave them 2,000 years ago, if they had not done what Jesus called them to do, none of us would be sitting in this room today. None of us would be believers in Jesus Christ today. This, this would have died out long ago 
if the 12 had not taken seriously to spread the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so th this is where our roots as believers begins with these 12. We owe so much to these 12 apostles. And here's something else practical that we need to understand today. J the same way that these 12 apostles spread the good news of the gospel that has spread for the last 2,000 years to each of us individually so we should accept Christ. The same commission and responsibility that was given to them 2,000 years ago is given to us as believers today. If you, if you believe that, say yes. And if you don't believe that, let me help you out with what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20, because this commission, I believe, was given to the 12, but it's also given to all of us today. This is, if you said, what is the verse that drives the Orchard Church more than any other verse in the Bible? What is it? It's this one right here. This is what this church is, was founded on and is all about. It's our marching orders from Jesus Christ. And what did he say? Go, therefore, and make disciples. We are a disciple-making church. You know why? Because Jesus told us to be. And if we're going to see Christianity continue to the next generation and the next generation, we have to take seriously the same commission that was given to the 12 2,000 years ago. To make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things as I have commanded you. And what does Jesus say? And I'll be with you. How often, church? Always, even to the end of the age. Amen. That's our commission until Jesus returns or till we pass on to be with him. It's to make disciples. It's our reproduce of our process here at the Orchard Church. We have a simple process for making disciples. It's reaching people for Christ, helping them to relate with other believers and grow in those relationships, and then reproducing where we're able to bring other people to Christ and disciple them. And I'd really encourage you, if you're not a part of our one-on-one -on -one discipleship ministry here at the Orchard Church, get involved because you're getting involved in what Jesus was talking about 2,000 years ago. That continues today. If you haven't been discipled, sign up on your connection card today. Let someone disciple you to take you through the word of God and help you grow in your relationship. And then be equipped to do that with someone else. If you say, well, you know, I'm, I'm pretty grounded in the word of God. I'm pretty strong in what I believe. And I've been discipled. Great. Then sign up to be a discipler. Because most of the time around here, we have a waiting list of people that want to be discipled, that are saying, will you please connect me with somebody that will sit down and help me understand uh, the Bible better, help me understand how to pray better, help me understand how to serve better, help me to be more connected in my relationship with Christ. You know, I think it's a tragedy to have people sitting on a waiting list waiting to be discipled and people maybe sitting in a chair that could disciple them but just aren't willing to take that step. This is serious. Be a part of discipleship. Now, as you look at these 12, and if, as you study them through all the Gospels, and you follow the life of these 12 men God chose, he chose the most unlikely group of men. I mean, these really were kind of a group of, of misfits as you study their life. And uh, I, I read this this week. I want to read it to you. And, and this is, suppose Jesus had gone to a consulting firm and asked them to, you know, assess these 12 men he was going to choose to change the world. What would this consulting firm say about these 12 apostles? And here's a memorandum. It's to Jesus, son of Joseph, woodcrafter of carpenter shop in Nazareth. It's from Jordan Management Consultants of Jerusalem. Here's what it might say. Dear sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for management positions in your new organization. All of them have taken our battery of tests. We have not only run the results through our computer, but also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. It's the staff's opinion that most of the nominees are lacking in background, education, vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise that you are undertaking. They do not have the team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience and managerial ability and proven capability. They go on. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale, known as Doubting Thomas. 
we feel that it is our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. Remember, he was the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, definitely have radical learnings, and they both register a high score on manic depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He is a man of ability and resourcefulness. He meets people well. He has a keen business mind and has contact in very high places. He's highly motivated, ambitious, responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. Yeah. All the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your new venture. Sincerely, Jordan Management Consultants. Well, some of you know the rest of that story, and they're all turned out well except for one, and that was Judas Iscariot. Now, why did I read that to you? Here's why. Because it's up to you and I to carry on the great commission to make disciples and reach this world for Christ. And I know some of you feel very inadequate. You feel like you don't have enough Bible knowledge, enough education, enough skills. Listen, if Jesus can use those 12, he can use you and I. If we'll be willing. And just as he established new leadership 2,000 years ago, he wants to begin to establish new leadership today in and through your lives who are willing to submit to discipleship. Jesus made all things new, first of all, by introducing a new leadership. Second, he made all things new in that he, entered, that he established a new family. He not only introduced a new leadership, but he established a new family, a spiritual family. Let's begin our, our reading in verse 20 where we left off. Then the multitude came together again so that they could not so much eat bread. I mean, Jesus is so popular at this point, he can't even eat a meal. Because people are wanting to talk to him, wanting to hear from him, wanting to be healed by him. But when his own people, and own people here can mean like his own family or closest friends, heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him. For they said, he's out of his mind. I want you all to understand at this point... Even Jesus' own family, except probably his mother Mary, who had been visited by an angel, his two half-brothers, James and Jude, at this point did not even believe Jesus was who he claimed to be. It wasn't until after the resurrection of Jesus Christ that they became believers and followers, and it changed their life. And they're like, Jesus, our, our brother has lost his mind He's not even eating. He's trying to heal people. His teaching doesn't make sense. I mean, it, we got to go, go bail the boy out, man. We got to go help him out. Let's go get him. Let's bring him back home. So they made this like 30-mile trek from Nazareth to Capernaum to try to help Jesus out. Now, we're going to jump back to verse 22 in a moment, but I want you to jump over to verse 31 because that's where this story continues right here. Then his brothers and his mother, they show up at the house. They came, the 30-mile journey, and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him, Jesus, come on, come, come on home. You're, you're making a fool of yourself. Come, come back with us. And a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Hey, look, your mother and your brothers are outside. They're seeking you. They're looking for you, Jesus. What are you going to do? But he answered them, saying, who is my mother or my brothers? And they're like, well, they're right, they're right out there. That's them. He's like, no. And he looked around in the circle at those who sat about him, those that were following him, those that were believing in him, and said, here are my mother and my brothers. And they're like, okay, now we know he's lost his mind. What, what is he talking about? For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. And so Jesus' family comes to get him, but he uses this opportunity, what we might call a crisis moment. He uses this opportunity to teach a very important spiritual lesson to all of us about a very special new relationship that he is introducing about a new family. Not a physical family, but a what, church? A spiritual family. The family of God, the brothers and sisters in Christ, those that put their faith and trust in Christ, the family that we all enjoy today when we accept Christ. And he's introducing it here, this spiritual family. And you know how you get in this spiritual family? The same way you got into your physical family, by a birth. Not a physical birth, but by a spiritual birth, a second birth. Now, I hear this a lot. I hear people say, this phrase, we are all God's children. 
Living in God's world, we're all God's children. If you've ever heard anybody say, we're all God's children, say yes. Did you know that biblically that is not a true statement? We are not all God's children. We are all God's creation. God has created all of us and even made all of us. The Bible says he formed us in our mother's womb. But we are not all God's children and we are not all part of God's family. The only way you get into God's family and become God's child is when you put your faith and trust in God's son, Jesus Christ. And you are born again. And you have a spiritual birth. We don't have time to go there, but check it out later. In John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus addressed some people and he said, you're of your father the devil. You're not in my family. So the way we get into God's family is by a second birth. Listen to what John said in John 1.12. I quote this verse a lot here at our church, especially at the end of the message, when we're giving people an opportunity to accept Christ, to be saved, to have eternal life, to be born again. It's, here's what it says. But as many, that, it, that includes everybody that's here, no matter what you've done, as many as received him, Jesus, to them he gave the right to become what, church? Children of God to those who believe in his name. That's how you get saved right there. That's how you get in God's family. You believe and you receive. You believe in Jesus, you receive Jesus. That's how you become a child of God. And until someone does that, they're not a child of God. They're not part of his family. And you know what the message of this church is to our community? We want to invite as many people as possible to get into God's family. To be God's child. To be forgiven of their sins. To receive and believe in Jesus. And I want to say to you right now today, if you're here today and you'd say, you know what? If you'd asked me when I walked in the door, am I in God's family or not? I don't know how I would have answered. I got great news today. You can join God's family today through a second birth by accepting Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. And wouldn't that be cool, church, if someone made that decision today? Amen. That's what the message of this church is all about. He didn't introduce a new religion. He introduced a new family. He introduced a new relationship through him. In John 3, Jesus was talking to a man named Nicodemus, and he was trying to explain the second birth. Do you remember that story? And listen to what Jesus said. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see, what? The kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is that spiritual kingdom. When we accept Christ, we become part of his family, we become part of his kingdom, which takes us to the third new thing that Jesus brought us. Jesus established a new family where we can be part of his kingdom. He made all things new and that he introduced new leadership. He established a new family. And then number three, he announced a new kingdom that we could be a part of through faith in Jesus Christ. A new kingdom. We're going to spend the rest of our time talking about this new kingdom. You see, when Jesus showed up on the scene, the crowds, which mo most of them were Jews, they, they believed in a new kingdom. The Old Testament talked about that there would be a day where a Messiah would come and introduce a new kingdom. But they were looking for a physical kingdom, a literal kingdom, you know, where a literal king would sit on a throne and rule and reign. And Jesus is going to bring that kind of kingdom. We've learned about that in Revelation. It's called the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that is yet to come. And we believe it will literally happen. Amen, church? But, but it hasn't happened yet. When Jesus came the first time, his intention wasn't to bring the literal kingdom, but to offer a spiritual kingdom. Where we accept him as the king of our life and the, our Lord and Savior and he sits on a throne on our hearts and he rules and reigns and we can be a part of the spiritual kingdom. But see, this was very confusing to the Jewish people because they thought, well, if you are the Messiah, if you're who you claim to be, you know, man, go ahead. Let's, they were under great persecution by Rome at this time. Rome was ruling the world and, and many of them followed Jesus just because they thought he would bring in this new kingdom and they would not be persecuted anymore by the Romans and they would get out of their affliction. And Jesus was confusing them because he kept talking about a kingdom and they're looking for it and he's like, you're looking in the wrong place. It's not a physical kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom that I'm offering you right now. And so because this was so confusing to them, he had to explain it to them. He had to help them understand that right now I'm not trying to bring this physical kingdom. I'm trying to bring a spiritual kingdom. And so he focused on spiritual things. Spiritual kingdom that was in us. A spiritual family. Spiritual leadership. And in this next section we're going to look at this morning. Kingdom is a key word. 
And he uses it over and over and over. So what is this spiritual kingdom like? Um, how is it different from a physical, literal kingdom? Well, to help them understand and to help us understand, Mark and Jesus introduce a new word. It's a word you've heard before if you've been in church around the Bible. It's called a parable. If you've ever heard of a parable, say yes. Everybody say the word parable. And, and Jesus uses parables to explain this new spiritual kingdom. If you're with me, say yes. Okay? And so he's going to give them parables. What is a parable? Let me give you the definition of a parable. It comes from the Greek word parabolo. It means to cast alongside. To cast alongside. Jesus is going to cast parables alongside his teaching about the spiritual kingdom. He's going to paint a picture for them through these stories. And, and he's trying to help them understand what they don't understand, which is the spiritual kingdom that he's, he's offering. And, 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 you know, I've heard many different definitions of a parable. Some people say, well, a parable is an a earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And that, and that is partly true. Uh, some people say, well, it was just an illustration like today, you know. You know, Pastor Doug, when you're teaching, you sometimes use illustrations. And, and it was an illustration, but it was more than that. It was much deeper than that. Parables had incredible spiritual impact for good and for some, some excuse me, not so good. L let me read you what one commentator said about parables I thought was really good. I want to I read it to you, and, I, and we're going to put it on the screen. A parable... They said, a parable begins innocently as a picture that arrests our attention and arouses our interest. It gets our attention. But as we study the picture, it becomes a mirror in which we suddenly see ourselves. If we can continue to look at the parable by faith, the mirror becomes a window through which we see God and his truth, his word. How we respond to that truth will determine what further truth God will teach us. That's the power of the parables. Parables, if our heart is right, will reveal truth to us. However, parables, when our heart is not right, will hide truth from us. It, it's a double-edged sword. It's really powerful. Uh, what parables? Listen to what Jesus said about the parables when the disciples asked him, why are you teaching in parables these stories? And look at chapter 4, verse 10. Through 12, what Jesus said. But when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parable. And he said to them, to you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom. See, this, this, this kingdom was a mystery to them. This spiritual kingdom, they didn't understand it. So he's like, I'm using parables. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables. So that seeing they may see and not perceive, hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. Do you see what Jesus said there? For those that want to believe in me and want to follow me, parables are going to just open their eyes that much more. But for those that have a hard heart and don't really want to follow God and really don't want to follow Jesus, the parables are just going to confuse them all that much more. Boy, I'll tell you, church, you know what that tells us? It is really important, our heart attitude toward God's word. If you have a heart that is open and teachable to God's word, God will teach you and you will learn more of God's word. But if your heart is hard and is calloused or disobedient towards God's word, he's not going to give you more until you listen to what he's saying. The, the same thing that happened with parables happens every Sunday in this church as we open the word of God. People's hearts that are open to it walk away and God does amazing things in their heart and life. Other people that their heart is hard, they go, eh, that's all right, you know, kind of some funny jokes he told. You know, I really like the music, but yeah, that's all it did. It's all about heart attitude. That's really important for us. Sometimes I talk to people and they go, yeah, I wish God would show me more. I wish I could understand more of God's word. You know, the, the key is not more schooling and more theology. It's more of our heart being open to what God wants to teach us. That's what it's all about. You can have all the schooling and degrees in the world if your heart is not open to God, you're not going to learn more. You're not going to understand. I've met people, you know, with degrees all over their wall that when you talk to them, you, you, you understood they really don't understand spiritual truth, even though they've got degrees. Thirteen times in this section, Jesus uses the word hear. 
or a form of the word hear. And he uses it in relationship to our response to God's word. And what he says is, you can physically hear God's word, but it doesn't guarantee you're going to spiritually hear God's word. It's a matter of your heart. Remember what James 1 says? James said, be doers of the word and not just hearers only. So Jesus gives us here several parables, four of them, to help them and us understand this new spiritual kingdom that had been a mystery to them. The kingdom of God, the spiritual kingdom. Let's look at these four this morning with the remainder of our time. First of all, he gives the parable of the strong man to help us understand the spiritual kingdom. Verse, we're going to jump back to verse 22 of chapter 3 that we skipped. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebub. Now, Beelzebub is a name for the devil or Satan, but it literally means master of the house, which will become important in a moment. They said, he has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. Do you understand who they're saying this about? They're saying this about Jesus. You see, they, they could not reason away the miracles he was doing, so instead they decided, well, we're just going to say he's doing it in the power of Satan. That's what they said. Verse 23, so he called them to himself and said to them in a parable, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. He's, he's saying, you guys are stupid. This doesn't make any sense. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself, against Satan, it's divided. He cannot stand, but has an end. He's going to be destroyed. No one can enter a strong man's house Take his goods unless he first binds who? The strong man. And then he will plunder his house. Jesus was casting out demons in order to bring people into his new spiritual kingdom. But then they said, oh, you're doing that in the power of Satan. And he's like, why would Satan cast out Satan? He's like, these claims are ridiculous by the religious leaders. And he said, that's like scoring on your, your own team. You know, it's like, you know, a football player turning around and going the wrong way and scoring a touch. He's like, Satan is not going to try to defeat Satan. It didn't make any sense. And he uses the story of the strong man. Now, the strong man in the story represents Satan, and the house represents the world. And what is he saying? Satan is the God of this world. And he said, if I'm trying to bring in a spiritual kingdom, I need to cast the strong man out. But the strong man is not going to cast himself out. And he's doing this here through the parable of the strong man in his teaching. And then look at what happens in verse 28. This is, this is a question that people ask all the time. We're going to answer right here. Verse 28. Assuredly, Jesus says, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemes they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is subject to eternal condemnation. Because they said... He, Jesus, has an unclean spirit, or they, they said, the religious leader said Jesus was possessed by a demon. Okay, what, what's going on here? Have you guys ever heard of what's called the unpardonable sin or the unforgivable sin? That's what we're reading about here uh, in, in the Gospel of Mark. And Jesus warned the religious leaders that they might be in danger of committing an eternal and unforgivable sin. And many people today ask the question, what is the unpardonable or unforgivable sin? And can someone commit it today? Because if someone can commit some unpardonable, unforgivable sin today, we want to know what it is so we don't commit it. Amen? So people ask all the time, can that be committed today? My answer to that would be yes and no. Okay, we need a parable to help understand that, Pastor Doug. Here's, here's what I believe. I believe yes and no. Here's where I don't, don't believe it can be committed today. We, we, we've taught you before there are three applications to all Scripture. Historical, doctrinal, and practical. Historically and doctrinally, what was going on was Jesus was casting out demons. He was healing people. There were religious leaders watching Jesus, seeing Jesus physically in the flesh do this. And they said, he's doing that in the power of Satan. Jesus is not physically here today. We cannot physically see him cast out demons today and heal people in that way today. So I don't believe historically, doctrinally, we can commit that sin today because Jesus is not here doing that today. I believe that it was specific for those people at that time if you take it in its historical, literal, doctrinal context. However, I believe people can commit a sin like this today that is very much like this practically. 
where they blaspheme the Holy Spirit and they reject Jesus. Because we know that the scripture teaches in order for someone to come to faith in Christ, they have to be first convicted by the Holy Spirit of God. Nobody comes to Jesus on their own terms. I've heard people say, well, I'll get saved whenever I want to get saved. I'll accept Christ whenever I want to. That is the dumbest thing in the world to say. Because the Bible says no man can come to the Father except they are drawn. They are invited. Remember what the Bible said? You know, he, he came looking for us. We didn't go looking for him. Every one of you that accepted Christ did so when you were first convicted by the Holy Spirit of God in your life that you were a sinner, you needed your sins forgiven, and you needed eternal life. If that's how you came to Christ, say yes. That's how I came to him. My heart was beating out of my chest as an eight-year-old boy on July 4th, 1976. I finally had listened to the message one day in church instead of sleeping by my mom. And I knew I needed to make a decision. And that came from the Holy Spirit. Had I said no to the Holy Spirit and pushed him away, I was also pushing Jesus away and I would not have been saved. The, way that you, the only way you can commit this unpardonable, unforgivable sin today is to be convicted by the Holy Spirit to accept Jesus and reject him. That's how, we do it. That's how it's committed today. But anyone who will respond to the Spirit and accept Christ can be saved no matter what sins they've forgiven because Jesus died for all sins. Amen? Not some, not most, all. And what was Jesus saying here? In order to be a part of this new kingdom, you must accept the king. And the king is Jesus. And so Jesus used this parable of the strong man to explain this new spiritual kingdom. He used another parable to explain this new spiritual kingdom. And it's the parable of the soil. Of the soil. Look at verse 1. And again, he began to teach by the sea. And a great multitude was gathered to him. So he got into a boat and he sat in the sat in it on the sea, and the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. I mean, can you see this scene? I mean, there's so many people, they didn't have a platform, so they put Jesus in a boat. He's out in the water. Everybody else is like on this hillside, so they can see Jesus. And, and also, if you've ever been on a lake, you know, sound really travels well across the water, and so it probably would have used it as a natural, you know, sound to, to amplify the sound, and Jesus could speak to this multitude uh, out, out on the sea. Then he taught them many things by... By what church? By parables. And he said to them in his teaching, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, or to plant. And it happened as he sowed, or he planted, that some of the seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came, and they devoured it. Some fell on stony ground, where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up, because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up, and they choked it out, and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground, and it yielded a crop that sprang up and increased and produced, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He's just told this story about a sower who was planting seed in soil, and some of it bore fruit, and some of it did not. And it all depended on the quality of what? The soil. And that whole story was a spiritual truth for us. And Jesus even helps them out here. He explains the parable. We've already read verse 10 through 12, so jump down to verse 13. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? So he's going to help them out. The sower sows the what? Sows the word. The sower sows the word. Jesus explained how people in the true spiritual kingdom would respond to God's word. The seed was a picture of what? The word of God. The seed was a picture of the word. The soil is a picture of, guess what? Our heart. Our heart's response when the word of God is sown, when it is taught, when it is heard, when it is planted... And the condition of our heart is like the condition of soil, whether or not it will take root and whether or not it will, will respond to it and bear fruit. I mean, this is one of the most practical of all the parables. The four kinds of hearts that people can have and how we will respond to the word of God based upon the condition of the soil of our heart in verse 15 to 20. We're going to look at these four kinds of soils, four kinds of hearts. Let me give them to you quickly. First of all, there's the hard heart. The hard heart. Look at verse 15. 
And these are the ones who by the wayside where the word is sown, when they hear, Satan comes immediately and he takes away the word that was sown in our heart. This is like seed falling on hard ground. It doesn't take root. And, and, and who comes? Satan the, the fowls, the birds of the air, he illustrates them, come and they, they pick up the, the seed and they eat it. Now, I understand this, this one very well because that same new house in Indiana needed a new yard. All I got was dirt in my backyard. And it wasn't good dirt. It was hard dirt. And, and in Indiana, I don't know why it's different. I love Colorado because you can buy uh, you know, soil pretty cheaper. You can buy uh, you know, uh, sod really cheap. Back there, it was really expensive. So most people you know, just planted seeds. And so my neighbors were like, yeah, you just got to plant seed. You know, put it on your yard and water it a lot. I'm like, okay, sounds good. I'd never grown a yard before. So I t- went to the Home Depot. I bought me a bunch of s- seed. And I threw it all around my yard, and I turned the sprinkler on. And I thought, okay, I'm going to wait for the yard. Well, I thought watering it once was good. Yeah. I didn't know any different. The next day, it was really hot. It all dried out. A windstorm came up, and all of my seed blew off my entire yard. I had no yard. Birds were coming, eating the seed, because I didn't do anything to prepare the ground. I didn't do anything to prepare the soil. I just threw it out there. And that's the picture of the hard heart. People that have a hard heart, the word of God, they may hear it, they may listen to it, they may sit in a service like this, but it just hits and it bounces right off. And Satan just takes it away and has no effect on their life. Here's the second kind of heart, the shallow heart. Verse 16, these likewise are the ones who on stony ground, who are sown on stony ground. When they hear the word immediately, they receive it with gladness at first, but they have no root in themselves, and so they endure only for a time. And afterward, when tribulation and persecution arise for the word's sake, immediately what happens? They stumble. This is the shallow heart. We could call this the emotional response to God's word. You know, the, the, the soil isn't very deep. In Palestine, where Jesus was, they understood this because there was a lot of rock that was very close. And sometimes the soil would only be two or three inches deep, and you couldn't plant in that. Because the roots would only go down so far and then when the storms would come and dry weather would come, it had no root and it would just fall away. And that's what the emotional heart is. It's people, they, they, they may hear the word and they might be convicted by it and it, it might make them cry. It might make them feel emotional about it. But they walk out the doors and there's not enough root. There's no discipleship. And before long when life gets tough, it just falls away. It doesn't really take root in their life. It doesn't have any effect in their life. That's the shallow heart. Then there's the third kind of heart, the crowded heart. Look at verse 18 and 19. Now these are the ones sown among thorns, and are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of this world with deceitfulness of riches and desires for other things entering into their life choke out the word, and it becomes unfruitful. The crowded heart is people who they want to follow Jesus, they want to know his word, they start doing it for a little while, but everything in the world becomes more important than Jesus. Riches and things and possessions and popularity and prestige and positions and power and all those things choke out. They're in church, then they're out of church. They're in the word, then they're out of the word. And and the things of the world take them away from a deep relationship with Jesus Christ and his word. And then there's a fourth kind of soil, a fourth kind of heart in this parable. It's the fruitful heart. This is the kind of heart we should all strive to have in this new spiritual kingdom of God. But these are the ones who... The ones sown on good ground. Those who hear the word, they accept it, and they bear what, church? Fruit. They bear fruit. Some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. Listen, we know that some Christians bear more fruit than other Christians. But here is what is true of all genuine Christians. At some point, they bear what? Fruit. The word of God has so taken hold in their life... It's, it's with the right heart response and right attitude. It takes root. They're discipled and it grows. Listen to what Jesus said to his disciples. His disciples were like, how are we going to know when we look around who the real believers are and who are not real believers? And listen to what Jesus said in Matthew seven twenty. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my father. How do we know who's truly part of the spiritual kingdom? People bear fruit that that's where the orchard church name came from we want to be a church that helps people allow the word of god to take root in their life that it produces fruit that's why we're called the orchard it's not just a name we 
picked because of some mall or some street. Or It's a spiritual truth. We want to help people bear fruit. You know why? If you were to ask, what is the number one thing we are supposed to do with our lives as Christians? Can we all agree it's to glorify God? That's the number one thing. It's to glorify God. Well, how do we glorify God? Well, listen to what Jesus said in John 15, 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. The more fruit we bear, the more glory we bring to God. So you'll be my disciples. One of the best ways to bear fruit for this spiritual kingdom is to understand this next parable. Here's the next one. We've seen the parable of the strong man, the parable of the soil. It's the parable of the lamp, verse 21 to 25. And he said to them, is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed? Is it not to be put on a lampstand? For there is nothing hidden which will not be revealed. For there is nothing been kept secret, but it should come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Then he said to them, take heed what you hear. With the same measure you use, that we measure to you. And to you who hear, more will be given. And whoever has, to him more will be given. But whoever does not have, even what he has, will be taken away from him. It's the parable of the lamp. You know, people who want to know more of God's word and understand they've got to be obedient to what they, they know. We already talked about this. A lamp in, in the time of Jesus was like this picture here. Uh, this is a, an old ancient lamp. It was a clay dish with a wick that was, had oil in the lamp. And it would spread light to the house. And there's a spiritual application in this parable. We are the lamp to shed God's light to this world. We know that. The Bible says we are the light of the world. But the only way that our lamp is going to shine is we have to have oil in our lamp. And oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit and God's Word. So here's the deal. You want to shed more light of God into this world? Put more of God's Word into your life. The more of God's Word and His Spirit we have, the more light we will show. And the more people we will be able to bring into the kingdom and we'll bear more fruit. This is all working together. The new kingdom is like a strong man. It's like a soil. It's like a lamp. And here's the final one, and we close. We'll close with this. It's like the seed, the parable of the seed. Look at verse 26 to 29. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep by night and arise by day, and the seed should sprout and grow, and he himself does not know how. Wow. Look at there. It's growing. I don't know how, but it did. I planted it, and there it is. For the earth yields crop by itself, first the blade, then the head, and after that the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. He's saying this is how the spiritual kingdom of God grows. We can't fully explain it or understand it, but it grows in people's hearts and lives as Jesus works in their life. We just, here's our responsibility, church. We plant the seed by faith and we allow God to do the rest. Remember that was talked about in, I think, one of Paul's epistles. He said, some plant, some water, but who gives the increase? God gives the increase. We just have to be patient. You know, be patient with people. I know all of you have people in your sphere of influence. You've tried to tell them about God. You've tried to tell them about God's word. You've tried to, you know, invite them to church. You've planted seeds, and you keep going, when are they going to sprout? When are they going to respond? Be patient. It's in God's time. We can't understand it. God works individually in everybody's life. We're patient is what he's saying here. And then verse 30 to 34, our last verses. Then he said to him, or excuse me, to what shall we liken the kingdom of God? Again, he's trying through these parables to help them understand the spiritual kingdom of God. What shall we, what's it like? Or with what parable shall we picture it? It's like a mustard seed which when it is sown on the ground is smaller than all the seeds of the earth. But when it is sown, when it's planted, it grows up and it becomes greater and bigger than all the herbs and shoots out large branches so that all the birds of the air may nest under its shade. And with many parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. But without a parable, he did not speak to them or teach them. And when they were alone, he explained all these things and these parables to his disciples. And he gives this last parable of the spiritual kingdom of God and what it's like, and he says, it's just like a little bitty seed. It's just like a little bitty seed when you plant it. It's very small, it's very minute, but when it grows, it can become huge. You know, God loves to take small, little things and make a big impact for his kingdom. I live by that. Literally. He does. He loves to take small things. Now, how you think about when this spiritual kingdom started, what we read today, 
It started with 12. And then it grew. We, we read in other scriptures that we're up to 500 people following Christ. We get to the book of Acts, and on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people become part of this spiritual kingdom. They say statistically, you know, there's about 6.3 billion people in the world today, and 2 billion of those people claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. I don't know how many of those are genuine and true. I'll leave that up to God. But 2 billion, just in our lifetime right now, currently claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, part of his spiritual kingdom. He took something 2,000 years ago, very small, but look at what has grown to today as people have done their part to help grow his kingdom. You look at the Orchard Church itself. This church began in the summer of 2005 with four people, our family. And look what God has done in the last six and a half years. Only God could do that. And it's our turn today, folks. Listen, this is our passion here at the Orchard Church today. It's our turn. It's our time to invite people into the spiritual kingdom of God today. Listen, if 12 men changed the world 2,000 years ago, what could a 1,000 of us that call Orchard Church our home do in our community today? I don't think we can even begin to fathom and grasp what God could do if we'll all be obedient. Jesus made all things new and that he presented three new relationships, a new leadership, a new family, and a new kingdom. Here's my practical questions to you today as we close. Are you part of this kingdom and family? If you're not, you can be today. Are you ready for something new in your life? You can accept Jesus today. If you are part of this spiritual kingdom, man, you ought to thank God for that today, amen? You're part of something Jesus started 2,000 years ago that is still just as alive today as it's ever been. But those of you that are part of the kingdom and part of the family, who are you inviting in? Who are you inviting in to the family of God today? Who are you reaching out to that needs Christ? How are you trying to bear fruit? And then for all of us today, what kind of heart are you accepting God's word with? What is the, what is the soil condition of your heart today? Is it falling on hard ground, shallow ground, crowded, or is it going to be fruitful? He can make all things new in your life today. Maybe you're here today and you say, you know what? I've gotten away from God. I was once with him. I've gotten away. Whatever's happened in your life, he can make all things new in your life today if you'll allow him to. Would you bow your heads this morning with heads bowed? And eyes